0: Full disclosure, I am Robin Farzad. My guest, Maz Jobrani, is the funniest Iranian alive. You've seen him on The Tonight Show. He's appeared as Jafar in Disney's The Descendant. And his special I'm Not a Terrorist But I Play One on TV is currently playing on Showtime. You can also buy his book of the same name, by the way. Jabrani has done TED Talks. He's a regular on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. He's highly typecastable, and he enjoys nude scenes. Full disclosure, please, Ara, stay with us. Local broadcast of Full Disclosure is made possible by Elwood Thompson's. Measuring the distance food travels from farm to fork in support of local farmers in our community. Elwood Thompson's local market, serving Richmond for 25 years, located at the top of Carytown. So I'm Iranian. My wife is Indian. Our nanny is Guatemalan.
1: Our kids are confused. They don't know who is who or what is what, I swear to God. Like, they spend more time with the nanny than they do with us. Like, I think that they think that the nanny is their mother, me and my wife are the nannies. I serve him. my son's three and a half now. Every night when the nanny's leaving, he's got a Guatemalan accent when he talks. <laughs> when she's leaving, adios, mama.
0: Joining us from Terangeles where he's puffing on a hookah pipe and cracking pistachios uh, while wearing black socks, is Agaimaz Mazjobrani. Thank you so much. Hello, Robin Farzad. How are you? <laughs> I have to ask, for the millions of people out there who wonder about your name, you potentially, if you played your cards differently, could have been known to most Americans as the first Dr. Jabroni. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, my full name is Maziar Jabroni, and and I I was born in Iran. um, So yes, you're absolutely correct. Uh, Having Iranian parents, chances are you're going to be a doctor. A lawyer, an engineer, or they're gonna kill you. No, but so you you the...
0: missed the important part there. Jabroni is what the Iron Chic used to inveigh against.
1: Oh yes, jabroni. Well, jabroni. with well, that's. Were the you called
0: jabroni in, in in middle school and elementary school when the Iron Chic, and then subsequently the Rock? He's like, <laughs> I don't want to deal with that jabroni.
1: You know, the the the, the name wasn't as well known back then. The jabroni uh, word. So jabroni for those people that don't know, uh, jabroni is a, a derogatory term that wrestlers use uh, towards one another. And I looked it up because my last name is Jobrani. And I was wondering, I was like, what are the odds that my last name would be so close to a derogatory term in wrestling? And the and the funny thing is my father back in Iran had a lot of friends who were wrestlers because the – and I'm talking like Greco-Roman wrestling, Olympic wrestling, not like WWE wrestling. Well,
0: so was the Iron Shake when he was in Iran. Exactly. He was a Zur Hunegai. Yeah, So in my mind, I thought maybe
1: my father somehow knew the Iron Sheik and it pissed him off. And the Iron Sheik had come to America and started to use uh, uh, a version of our name as a derogatory term and it become popular. That's what I thought. So I looked it up. I honestly was like, wait a minute, maybe my dad peed this guy off. And I looked it up and it turns out jabroni is a short term for it's, it's for day jobber. It's for the guys. You know those guys in the wrestling matches? Who would always that, lose. Who would always lose. Right. They didn't have a name. They, didn't have, they were day jobbers. So they call them Jabroni, you Jabroni. So that became the thing. And so it's funny you say that because, you know, th- there's been a few times. This happens a lot when I'm doing, um, as a comedian, you do morning radio uh, in different cities. <laughs> so I'll be doing, like, morning radio in, like— I, don't I know, could cancer. see
0: I could see Baba Booey on Howard Stern calling you Jabroni.
1: Exactly, that's the kind of person who, and they continue even when I say no, it's Jabroni. They continue to mispronounce it because they didn't. I don't think intentionally. Doctor
0: Jabroni. Doctor yeah, Jabroni. By the way, I was shocked to see that. Look, you know, I've I've told you offline that I both admire you, I find you hilarious, and at the same time, I kind of resent you because if I had applied myself a bit less, I, I could have been Mas Jabroni. You know, I'm I'm like half as funny as you are but you are incredibly exceptionally funny you're a student poking fun at yourself at iranian archetypes and whatnot and i was shocked to read in your bio that you very nearly got a phd at ucla what, what was up with that
1: first of all you could have been me um you just you just your hair's too nice though you it's not going to happen my friend you need if you want to be a comedian you need to have a bigger nose less hair um you know it's hard it's hard to hard to be both. Uh, 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 a radio personality with with great hair and a comedian it's not going to work right but you so you
0: transcend you've played Mexicans before <laughs> you've paid, you've played Palestinians i mean you're you're for hire there and this is what i want to get at obviously looking at your your resume you know you came here when you were 6 was it 1978 yeah late 78 late 78 is when i came here and i was uh 3 And my parents, you know, I have the the, the stereotypical Iranian mother and father, apply yourself. We came here for, we left everything over there. And I'm sure you got the same drill out west in California. And I'm seeing that you went to Berkeley and then UCLA. Unpack all of this for me. Take me back to coming to America.
1: Sure. So late 78, you know, I always tell people that a lot of, people did not realize that the revolution was going to actually happen because I think a lot of Iranians thought that the Shah was somehow going to uh, stop it. Um, and so my father was on business um, in New York and it was uh, Christmas break for our school, or holidays, you know, winter holidays for our school in Iran. So my dad said to my mother, he said, why don't you bring um, me and my older sister to New York for two weeks to stay with them during those holidays. And um, we even left my baby brother back in Iran Jeez. at the time. Yeah, and so we came. I always say we came for two weeks. We stayed for 35 years mm. um, because a, a, as we stayed, it just got worse and worse. Um, and, the, and the revolution picked up. And so we never went back. And then we ended up leaving New York. We, we, we stayed in New York for like a couple months. Wait, wait, wait.
0: Time out. What were your first impressions? Do you remember getting into JFK? You were, oh, after all, dude. six.
1: Yeah, I was six. I loved it. My father was a successful businessman. So he uh, was staying at a hotel, in a, at a suite at the Plaza Hotel across the street, by the way, from FAO Shorts. So my first impressions of America was like, whoa, they got a toy store on every corner. Um, and, and, and I was just hanging out. I had free time. I'd be going with my mom. I, I, I love the color orange because back in Iran, we had orange Fanta soda. Mm. Um, but it was actually made by Canada Dry. Um, and so I'd fall in love with the color orange. So uh, my mother would just go shopping all day and she would take us and we ended up at Macy's and I found this great um, orange hat, glove and scarf set that had, it was a Snoopy, Snoopy and, and it was orange. And I
0: was like, this is heaven. I was like, I'm loving this. So wait, was it so, the first time you saw black people? I mean, what? what t- tell me more uh, about uh, it. Uh, no, really, I, you no, came I from honestly, Tehran.
1: Yeah. I honestly don't remember. I'm sure it was because we didn't have any, you know, black people in Iran. I mean, we did have, I mean, there was dark skinned Iranians, but not like African-American. Um, and so, yeah, must've been, it was, but, but you know, as a kid, you're so adaptable. I remember some of the, my dad's friends, cause he was doing business out here. He had some Korean friends and we ended up at the Korean guy's house and he had two sons and I was playing with these two Koreans. It wasn't, Anything foreign in my mind, I wasn't like, "Oh wow, how exotic!" It was like, "Oh look, two boys." You know, kids don't really see that as much in terms of like race and ethnicity and stuff. For me, it was just I was in New York City, walking the streets of New York City. So that said, you know, when I was a kid in Iran, I, Tehran isn't a quiet city either. I actually tell a story in in the book how my grandmother back in Iran had said, "Listen, if you ever see someone who's less fortunate than you," Look up in the sky and thank God, and say one of these Muslim prayers. There's like it's like a Hail Mary. Like say, you you got to say it seven times. So you do. So you say this like prayer seven times and thank God that you're more fortunate than the person you've seen on the streets. Mm. And so that was the thing she taught me in Tehran. And it was interesting because Tehran again is a bustling city. So we'd go into Tehran the downtown, and I would look out and there'd be some guy in a wheelchair or something, and I start saying a prayer. And then I would look across the street, and there's a homeless guy, and I'd say a prayer. Then I'd look over there, and there's like an albino. I was like, I don't even know if that's supposed to be – is that something that's unfortunate? I don't even know. (laughs) So I found myself – every time we go into the city, I'd be just saying prayers the whole time. So I went from a bustling city, really, to another even more bustling city. But America, really, for me, when I first got there was just – listen, I was on a vacation. There was no school for me because we didn't know if we are going to stay or go. Um, and I was getting to go to restaurants at night and order dessert. You know, I, I discovered strawberries with with whipped cream. I, I you know, I, I that had not been a big part of my childhood in, in in Iran. Did your
0: dad take you to Times Square in 1978 at night? Maybe. Maybe you know, I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't. Th-
1: I, I honestly, I, I think we were too busy going to fancy restaurants. I honestly do like. I just remember this image of my dad being drunk. My dad, you know, he was a successful businessman, but he also drank a lot. I remember him being drunk and we're driving from some restaurant and he's in the passenger seat. And back then, there was no child seats. There was no seat belts. I'm pretty sure I didn't have a seat belt on. I'm in the back seat. Whoever's driving, is his friend is driving, and my dad uh, is so happy. He puts one foot out the window with the window down. It's cold, middle of winter. And he's like singing a song in Persian. And he's like, he's the king of the world. And I'm in the back. I'm like, this is great. You know, dad is, dad's being silly. I'm flying around in the back of this car. My sister's here with me. I mean, it was, it was just, it was fun. When when
0: then at all did it become sober? Did, did either of your parents have to sit you down and say, look, we're, we're staying here, we're moving, we're put you, we're putting you in kindergarten.
1: In all honesty, it's funny you say that because that's something that I feel like, um, either an American parent would do or maybe a modern-day parent would do where they would sit there and tell the kid this is what's happening. For us, nobody told us anything. It was just like, okay, um, we're going to be going to... The next move was... Because because we, we tried to settle in New York. It was too cold. My mom said no. So then my father had some friends in Reno, Nevada. And so they, it wasn't like my mom sat down and said, listen, I think we're going to be staying for a while. She said, hey, we're going to Reno. We're like, all right. Going to Reno. And then when we go to Reno, again, rich Iranian, uh, successful businessman, self-made millionaire who likes to gamble. Uh, so he checks us into some suites at the MGM Grand Hotel. And so now we're staying at the MGM Grand Hotel at the suites. And every time we went into any hotel, my father, would word would come back from my mom that, hey, your dad is thinking of buying this place. <laughs> so I'm not kidding. Everywhere we went, my dad was going to buy the place. So here we are at the MGM and my dad is gambling a ton of money. And my mom's like, yeah, he's been hanging out with the owners and we may buy this place. And I'm like, oh, OK, I can hang out because, uh, you know, back then, these, and I'm sure they still do. But the, these, these big casinos, they had video arcades. I was like, great, I'll just hang out in the arcade. My dad will own the place. Life will be great. Um, and so while we were in uh, Reno at this hotel, uh, he had some friends come and visit us from Marin County, which is Northern California. And they stayed with us for a couple of weeks at this hotel. My dad got them a couple of sweets or whatever it was. And then they said, Hey, why don't you come stay with us? So then that was the next step was again, Ar- aren't you started- supposed
0: to be in school at this point? I mean, you're six yeah. years old. Should you not be in kindergarten or the first grade?
1: We should be in first grade, but nobody knows where we're going to end up. So no one's enrolling us in anything. No one's giving us a book to read. No people. I think I, I feel bad for my mom. I think she just had to like Get up in the morning and deal with us. No, because like... I do.
0: I do remember my mother coming here, and and the Iranian immigrants. You said this really poignantly on the PBS series, The Iranian Americans. I encourage everybody to look it up, um, and watch it. Is that. Uh, people came here and there was initially that optimism look we're we're here until it boils over that the shah has done more nefarious things in the past he's been restored in the early 1950s surely you know the CIA and the MI6 or whatever will restore him uh, and it was just supposed to be a vacation even even the shah and his wife thought that you know they could shuttle from panama and egypt and here and there but after several months it 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 started sinking in that no these these guys are playing for keeps and they're there for good and we've left everything behind
1: Exactly. But I think even then, I mean, this listen, this feeling of this is gonna change, this is gonna change, continued for years. I, I feel like I kept running into or I would overhear older Iranians saying things like, you know, once this regime leaves, we can all go back. You know, we can they they really felt even a year, two years, three years, four years later that the possibility of going back was there. Um and so for us, again, there was never this defining moment of sitting down and going. Hey, kids, um, a revolution has happened. Your, uh, country, our country's completely changed, and we're now going to be Americans. No, it wasn't like that. It was like step by step, um, end up in Marin County, Northern California. And finally, that's where I think because of the friends and uh, the where we were, it was beautiful up there, I think we finally decided to get a place. And that's when they finally said, okay, we're going to enroll you in school. And I think at the time, my mother just put us f- ahead one grade. Like she's like, you've been running around all this time, I'm going to skip the first and you're going to go right to second or something like that. We skipped second and we're right to third, I think. That's what happened. We Mm -hmm. skipped second, right to third. So um, it was kind of this thing that it just kind of happened slowly and there was never a moment where I thought, I mean, as a kid, I never thought I'm going back. There were times, I think in junior high school or maybe like around fifth, sixth grade, I remember there was a few times when I would wake up and I would think to myself, what if these whole past four or five years have all been a bad dream? And not that I was having a bad time, but the fact that we had to leave. And I said, what if I wake up and, Khome- and, and I find out that Khomeini is never, this Khomeini character doesn't even exist. It's been a figment of my imagination. I, I, had, I, I, thought, I had that thought a few times that like, what if you wake up and you're back in Iran? But that never happened.
0: Mm. You know, it resounded with me when I saw uh, in that series how you— talked about your father being so openly gregarious uh, with people, you know, back-slapping when he didn't need to. And it reminds me of my my dad. You know, you take me to the grocery store and even to this day, he takes perfume to a bank teller, or he kisses uh-huh. up to people at the post office. Oh, how are you? Oh, this I'm here in your city. It's you know, your father went as far as to try to get you to marry a uh, 14 uh, year old people behind an ice cream cart, uh, and and that really resounds with a lot of Iranian Americans. There, I think in my in my situation, it was my mom who was in constant mourning, but my father was like, no, we are Americans. We 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 have to make the best of this, and uh, I don't want to transmit any sort of anxiety or sadness or melancholy to my son. I want him to to uh, really believe that he can make it in this country. Talk us about how your father kind of transmitted his spirit, um, maybe even if he was faking it.
1: Yeah, well, you know, my father, first of all, the, the story, again, is in the book about how he tried to get a 14-year-old girl in, at an ice cream store to marry me. He was he was just joking with her, but he was such a, my father was such a larger than life, uh, loud character. I always compare him to Vito Corleone from The Godfather. He was just like, he was the, not, not that Vito Corleone was loud and gregarious, but my father was a guy that you went to if you needed something, some kind of help, if you needed to borrow money. Uh, he had so many
0: connections in Iran that if you needed your, Kids to be. Wait, was he? Uh, let me ask you off the bat. Full disclosure: Was he? Was he an opium salesman, an arms dealer? Was he with the secret police? I mean, uh, you guys no, had it was, pretty easy those first few years.
1: No, no, he was. What happened was, my father uh, owned an electric company in Iran. He had he'd he come from northern Iran, which just Tabriz, and he moved to Tehran, started working in an electric company. Eventually, moved his way up in that company and and owned the company. And then he told the story to me later in life because I always, you know, when you have a successful f- parent like that and they're not a doctor um, or, or or an engineer, something that's very definable, y- you're always confused about what they do. So I always asked my dad and I never quite understood. And it wasn't until later in his life when I was like, I really got to get to the bottom of this. And I asked him, I go, how did you make that money? And he said, listen, in the, I think, 50s or 60s, I'm not sure exactly what the date was, but the Shah's regime decided to nationalize... Uh-huh. Uh, electricity, and they decided to work with a handful of companies to give them the contracts. So my father said the word came out that these companies would be nationalized. He said I was worried, but he said then I got a call from some guy saying, "Hey, you're one of the companies we're going to work with." So suddenly it was kind of like he'd been chosen. It was like the the golden ticket to the chocolate factory. Mm. Uh, so he then he, he had all these contracts. So I remember people would tell me like you know for example the lights on this freeway leading from Tehran to such-and-such your father's company did all these so he was just making a lot of money hand over fist and Again because of that He had a lot of friends in high places. He knew the the police chief. He knew generals He had all these different contacts and so for example in Iran Military service was uh, mandatory, but sometimes people would say hey I want my kid to get out of it you could either pay to get out of it or maybe you knew somebody. So my dad was somebody you would go to and say, "Hey, can you help my kid get out of this and that?" And and so, and he was also very—he was—he was very generous with his money. He was very gregarious, very outgoing. He loved to—he loved to celebrate, party. You know, he would—we were constantly having parties at our house. And so that same person then comes to America, and we moved to Marin County, which is a rich county, but the wealth in Marin is a lot more subtle. Mm. Uh, you know, I say, for example the rich people in Marin would drive Volvos and Saabs. Right. And, and my father was this out, gregarious man who comes to uh, uh, Marin. And first of all, he, like most Iranian standard issue, black BMW. Mercedes, Mercedes. <laughs> sure. It was all Mercedes. And then, but then my dad was also the guy who, you know, a lot of his friends were other Iranians who'd come to America. And a lot of these guys came to America and they didn't know how the system worked here. They didn't set up shop. They were just spending the money that they had. So he had all these friends who would suddenly be low on money and they'd be like, hey, I got no cash left. And my dad would be like, okay, well, what do you got to sell? I'll buy it from you. So my dad would buy things all the time. Like one time he came home with a bunch of phones. Some guy had a bunch of extra phones he didn't need. And we didn't need extra phones, but he just brought them home. And so they would just sit in the cupboards in our kitchen. Nobody would ever use them. Um, He one time, he bought a Rolls Royce from a friend. So... There we are in Marin County, where everyone else is driving Saabs and Volvos, and my dad's driving me around in a Rolls Royce. And I felt so mortified. I was like, "Oh my God, the kids are gonna pick on me. They're gonna beat me up. Um, they're gonna think I'm a rich Saudi Sheikh's kid." Um, so that was that was my dad, and, and and but he was but like you said, he was very. Um, and whenever he would enter a room, you knew he was there. He was very outgoing. His English was very broken but he was learning as he went um and uh and so yeah i think that it wasn't just him trying to protect us i think it was just he did he did have a way of i was thinking about this recently he had a way of instilling confidence in us um in that i never felt that because of my father i never felt that i ever would struggle um financially in my life and and the honest truth is that my father Toward, as his as life went on, he mismanaged his money. Mm. He um, he he invested in a lot of property. He invested in some property in Northern California when he first came out. Th- he was able to take that property and sell it for uh, a good profit. And he thought, "Oh wow, let me buy more." So he bought a bunch of properties, and then the recession of the early '80s hit, mm. and suddenly interest rates went up, and he was left with all these properties. And so by the time he passed away in uh, uh, 2009, he basically had. He, he was he was broke. He'd lost all his money. He wasn't the kind of guy who would put money in a four oh one K. He was a self made millionaire who thought money would always be there. I think in Iran, uh, if you were rich, you would always be rich. And America is very different. Mm-hmm. So he, he hadn't invested for his future. And so but but he did instill this feeling in me that that I would never need money or even if I didn't even if I didn't have money that, that life goes on. And and I and I learned that from him. He would always be giving us money. Like as a kid, you know, sometimes people say um, you'd have to do chores to make money. And and my mother would do that sometimes with us where she'd say, whatever, clean, help me clean the kitchen and I'll give you five bucks or whatever. But my dad was like a tree. He was a money tree. I would go to him and say, hey, dad, I'm going to the movies. He'd be like, here's 20 for you. Here's 20 for your brother. Here's twenty for your friend. He would just throw us twenty. So how did bills. you,
0: you know, how did you break away and not become spoiled like one of the Tarantellinos? You know, the the, the Shahs of Sunset. You know, <laughs> the archetype very well. These people who, you know, come into Tarzana, they want to live in Encino, and then go off to Beverly Hills. And now the new apotheosis is apparently to divorce your husband and get a, a an Armenian trainer from Glendale to come and help you out. <laughs> <laughs> no, but really, I, you know, you know, know that cohort. You know, yeah. the huge lavish weddings, the loan sharking, sure. everything. So yeah. it's turns out, and I want to take this to your education, you went to UC Berkeley undergrad.
1: Yeah, so, so first of all, I think, I think I benefited, first of all, from growing up in Northern California where there really weren't that many Iranians. And again, like I said, even though a lot of the kids there were rich, um, there was some subtlety in, in the wealth up there. Um, so that's one thing. I I didn't know there was this many Iranians in Los Angeles till till I moved to Los Angeles after college, and I was just as shocked as anybody else to see this many Persians down here. The Iranians don't even say they're Iranian. Iranians say they're Persian. Iranians, we say we are Persian. You know, it sounds nicer and friendlier. We even smile. When we say we're Persian, we smile. I am Persian. I am Persian. I I am not dangerous. like
0: the cat. Meow! Were you a good student? I mean, you had to have been to go to Berkeley. Yeah, I was
1: a pretty good student. So I, I, I was a good student, and I and I also played soccer. So those two things helped me get into Berkeley. Um, uh, so I went to UC Berkeley, and, and at the time, I'd been doing plays since I was 12 years old, and I wanted to study acting in college, but my parents were like, no, 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 no acting. Uh, lawyer, engineer, doctor. So basically, uh, I, st- I studied political science, thinking that I would be a lawyer. My parents had finally convinced me that the way to go is to be a lawyer. One um, eight
0: hundred sushcon Habib and the Sush- Heartbreakers.
1: Exactly.
0: What is that voice? By the way, you like? We do Law Office of.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that was a. Uh, so you're talking about a video oh that's online. Oh my gosh, it killed me. Yeah, that me. was that was from a play that we did. So so. When I moved down, to, so so let, let me let me just give you the your chronology. life is
0: all over the place. How am I going to fit this into an hour? I know.
1: <laughs> so we so listen. We we I finish undergrad at UC Berkeley in political science, um, thinking I'm going to be a lawyer. In the meantime, I take uh, an acting class at Berkeley, and just like my high school teacher had told me, my high school acting teacher told me, my college acting teacher at Berkeley, they both say hey, you really got a talent for this acting thing, you should think about it. And I said, hey, I have thought about it, but my parents have convinced me not to do this. So then I said to myself, I said, listen, I I don't want to be a lawyer. Maybe I'll be a professor. That's a good compromise. So that it's something that, because part of being a lawyer is the security, the job security. Sure. Part of being a lawyer for the Iranians are, is that it's a reputable job and that it's you know it's something that, you know, you're you're that like uh,
0: you're the, telling the, me I still have an unopened LSAT test prep kit from 17 years ago. But go ahead.
1: There you have it. It's a, it's a reputable job that the community will not look down upon. That, sure. Like the Persian parents play the community card on you a lot. Like oh, what will the, what will people think if you become a if you're not a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer? What are they going to think? They're going to think we are we are we are losers and and we are and we are uh, uh, roughnecks or whatever <laughs> they think. You know, hamal is the word they use. Right. So. So um, so I finished undergrad at Berkeley. Then I said, okay, I'll be a professor. So I went to UCLA and started a PhD program in political science. Now, let me tell you something. My mother already was freaking out. By now, my father had moved back to Iran but my mother in America was freaking out that I wasn't going to be a lawyer. I was going to be a professor. And she would keep saying, there's no job market for professor. You'll never have a job. And I was like, how do you know the job market for professors? Like, what are you talking about? And my father, I think, lived in denial. Every time I would talk to him on the phone, he'd be like, okay, son. So when you go back to law school and get your law degree, you can finally work for me. So these two, they just were not accepting the fact that I was going to be a professor, which by the way. Doctor. Doctor. Yeah, it's a, do- it's a good job. So um, I got into the PhD program at UCLA. And I will tell you, that first quarter while I was there, I, would, I also started doing plays at the theater department. And I, when I would be on stage, I felt alive. And then when I would go to class for poli-sci, the discussion would always lead to um, what's our purpose as political scientists. And it was always publish or perish. And I thought, you know what? I, this isn't for me, man. So I was gonna, so I said, I'm dropping out.
0: And Wait, time out. Would you hang out with the Arangelinos in Vestwood in that area? Did you kind of, uh, you know, obviously there had to have been a lot of fodder for you to pick up on to lampoon later on in your career. I mean, that well, is this- a really pungent culture. You go to the, you know, the coffee bean and tea leaf in Vestwood and you see the, you know, the old guy getting out in sneakers and black socks out of a Bentley and he's got gold chains around his neck and, there are all these different characters that you, you only kind of see lightly lampooned on the Shaws of Sunset, but it must have given you a lot of material. Well, you know, it wasn't—listen, uh, I still—when I was when I was getting my Ph.D. at
1: UCLA, uh, my, my friends were either the Ph.D. students or they were—or I was doing plays at the time, so they were the actors in the plays. I, I didn't—I still had not gotten fully immersed in the Persian culture. I had—now, here's the thing. It, at UC Berkeley, and, I, and, I've, and, I've, and I've noticed this with a lot of communities, I think in undergrad— a lot of people find, their, find people of the, of the same background and they gravitate towards them. So at UC Berkeley, I met a whole group of friends. I met more, like, like growing up in, 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 in Marin, I had a handful of Persian friends. I had a lot of American non-Persian friends and it was all mixed together. When I went to UC Berkeley, at a certain point, I met a lot of Persians who had grown up in America who were very much like me. And so we basically had this camaraderie. Was there any
0: chastagari or courtship stuff? No, we were
1: too young. We were all very Americanized, and we were all very much just like, it was this handful of guys who who really hit it off because we all kind of uh, um, got each other. A handful of them had come from Los Angeles to Cal, uh, and, and then I was from Northern California, and we all would hang out and have a great time, and none of us were into... We weren't that we weren't that immersed in the Persian culture. We would go to nightclubs and stuff, which um, you know. So you'd be Irani- at the Viper
0: Room or something like that.
1: No, no, no. This is Northern California. Oh, this is Northern California. I yeah, want
0: to yeah. get to Tarantulas, man. Well, that's Squid what I'm so, on my ears.
1: no, no. So, 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 <laughs> what I'm saying is, from Northern California, those are the Iranians that I met, and then when I came down to L.A., those same guys had moved back down to L.A. Mm. So those that was my end of the Persian culture in in, in Los Angeles, where my friends. From that I'd met at Cal, so then I I, when I would hang out with them, yes, I would see more of the Persian culture. Again, we were all very Americanized. Like I had a buddy of mine, this guy named Afshin, and we would like we would go and we would sneak into um, uh, there was a club called Renaissance, I think. We would sneak into the club Renaissance because it was impossible for just two Persian dudes to get into a club. We would we would get reservations, we would get dinner reservations. And we would say, our girlfriends are coming. And we would go there and we would say, you know what? They're not here yet. Can we just hang by the bar? So while we're hanging by the bar, when the maitre d' would look the other way, we'd sneak right into the club and we'd be in. And that was our little, that was our little gimmick. And the joke was, his name was Afshin, but people called him Shinner. Um, like he, he was even more Americanized than I was. You know, We were all in frats and stuff in Northern California. So the joke we would do is we'd say, it's Shinner for dinner. And we would go, we would go sneak in. So that was so, but but then eventually, what happened was, I got to know more and more Persians, and yes, I would observe this crazy, uh, um, ostentatious Persian culture uh, that was going on, and the 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 interesting thing is that, um, then I ended up doing a play. A friend of mine, an Iranian guy, was producing a play. It was a play that was written in English, but it was about an Iranian guy who goes on a blind date with an Iranian girl. And the guy is a charlatan and lying about all the money he has, and the girl is a gold digger, and she's looking for a rich dude. And so this play was written for the Persian community in Los Angeles, and it was a hit uh, in that it was the first time there was a play in English making fun of these characters that you're talking about. Like my character, his name was Jamshid, and he would say, you know, you can call me Jimmy. Jimmy. You know, I own four buildings in downtown, I'm this, I'm that. Meanwhile, while he's on a date with this Persian girl, he's on the phone with his buddy trying to see if his buddy's hooking up with any blonde girls because he wants to go hang out with them. The Persian girl is asking this guy about what he owns, and and and, and basically it, we call it the blind date, which is the words blind date but said with a thick Persian accent. And then the second act we call the Wedding, and that's where... These two people that were made for each other mm-hmm. marry each other. And in the, and in the wedding ceremony, the, the uh, cleric actually says things like, you know, Jamshid, do you promise to give Sharona um, a uh, condo in one of the Wilshire Corridor high rises, 15 stories and above, marble counters, chandeliers, a room for her mother to stay with you? I mean, it was make, we were totally lampooning that culture. And that's when I, we started doing that.
0: We're talking to Iranian-American funny man Maz let uh, what's called this, you know, uh, <laughs> this Iranian life, as it were. Uh-huh. And I want to fast forward you to the point where uh, you kind of hit a tipping point. I need to leave this Ph.D. program. It's not for me. Take us to your do or die moment where you had to take the career risk and, and speak to how difficult it was to kind of square that with your mother and, and father who wanted you to be a lawyer or an engineer or a true doctor. Well,
1: um, I was doing a play at UCLA while also getting my Ph.D., and I loved doing the play. And the Ph.D., there was a paper due. There was just a short paper, five pages. And I was sitting in – and at the time, I'm living with my mom because my mother lived in the high-rises in Westwood, right near UCLA. So it, it made sense to live close to the school. And so I'm sitting at midnight um, in the living room, with my laptop computer open, getting ready to write a five-page paper, and it really hits me that I go, I really have no interest in doing this at all. Hmm. And I said, you know what? I'm not gonna do it. I closed the laptop, and Robin, I'll tell you, it was one of the best feelings I've ever had in my entire life. When you realize that this responsibility that you have is not life and death, it's not the end of the world, and you just say no. And I just closed it and I was like, oh my God, that felt so good. And so the next morning I tell my mom and my grandmother who was living with us at the time, I said, hey, I've decided to drop out of my PhD program. And they're like, what? And I go, yeah, I'm going to drop out and go pursue acting. And they're like, you're crazy. And it was funny because then they really were freaking out. And they were were saying things like they were trying to plead with me. They were like, listen, this acting is just, it's not real. You should... You know, e- okay, fine. Do it as a hobby on the side, but at least find a job that people need. At least, and I, my mom actually said, at least learn to become a mechanic because <laughs> people need mechanics. Nobody needs an actor.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well,
1: you know what it is, Robin? Here's what it is. In analyzing it, I realized, you know, these people are people that are coming from a revolution. These people were living large in another country, and suddenly their lives were turned upside down, and they saw friends who were generals in one country and working at a gas station in another. They saw friends who were doctors who couldn't continue to be doctors. So in my mom's mind, I think she thought, hey, at least if you became a mechanic, you could be a mechanic anywhere. So once the revolution happens in America, which is, of course, inevitable, then you could go to Argentina and be a mechanic. That was their thought process. So these Mm -hmm. people were living, and by these people, I mean my mother, my grandmother, these people whose lives have been affected in such a uh, revolutionary way, for lack of a better term, Um, these people were living in this constant uh, state of anxiety that that at any given moment, your life could be turned upside down. So that's why I also feel that that also added to a lot of Iranians not putting their money in uh, 401ks and all this other stuff, because in their minds they're thinking by the time you get there it's not going to be there like why trust
0: well, incidentally these incidentally uh you know i have something i've coined over the years called the iranian contrarian relative index when i'm in tehrangelis um, and i get pulled aside by a relative i never even knew i had it says uh, Farzad, you need to get your head out of a stock market. Real money is in real estate, agha. It's No, no. People <laughs> a warehouse. Let's buy a warehouse and just, let's buy the oil and put it in barrels. That's yeah. typically calling the top of the market, i.e. I should do the exact opposite of what fulan fulan aga Jamshid said. Um, That's funny. They have a kind of a knack for not trusting the system. And again, we're we're, we're stereotyping here, but what's a little stereotyping among two people? Iranian guys, right? Um, yeah. you know Persian rugs, nuts, gold, always at the if ever I get an unsolicited call from a relative I never knew I had, it's pretty much the top of the market. Um, and, and I, I think it does speak to that trauma and coming here and having something and suddenly having nothing and, and reaching for a permanence. I want to get a sense for when maybe you redeemed yourself with um, your mother as kind of the acting rebel without a clue.
1: You know, again, it's so funny because I, you know, I never even thought of the, these moments until you brought it up. Even the moment of them. That's why down.
0: I get paid the big bucks, Agha. Yeah,
1: you're like it's like a therapy session, man. Yeah, I'll um, take your copay. <laughs> no, it's like because because they never sat us down to say, "Hey, kids, we're staying," and she never sat me down to go, "Son, I'm proud of you." Like it never. Those moments don't happen. Like I don't have those cinematic
0: moments then in my let me, life. Let me hold your hand, my cousin. <laughs> uh, when was your first big break? When do you recall? Yeah, you know. Obviously, there, it's a dime a dozen. You could end up in the valley doing adult films, which you kind of turned the other way. You could have done that under a nom de plume, and I'm sure you'd come up with a great version of Dirk Diggler. But you actually took <laughs> semi-legitimate roles where you were typecast as a terrorist. Tell us about it.
1: Yeah, yeah, but let me but, but, but let me just answer that first question and that my mom did eventually come around. It wasn't the, she never used the words like I'm proud of you, but but uh, but she became I can a fan. live with you. <laughs> I can live with you, Yeah, this this will do for now until you become a doctor. No, she um she would, you know, again I I when I first started my career, she I still I continued to live at, at her place and I would come home with let's say a a videotape of a set and I'd be watching the videotape because You watch your set to see what you said and what you can fix and all this stuff. And I remember her being behind me when I'm in the, you know, I'm watching on television. She's like back somewhere in the and back of the room watching, and she was laughing and she was like, "Oh, it is very good." Like, and she'd seen me live and she'd seen the jokes, but she was still laughing, and it was it was great to see that. Like she'd come around, and I think it wasn't until she probably started seeing me on television some. She uh, that, that she started thinking, oh, wow, this can actually lead to something. And you're right. Early on, when I first started, uh, the some of the parts that I was getting were um, uh, typecast, uh, uh, you know, like like terrorist parts. And that was because it was early in the career. And those are the
0: parts that were coming up and not without my maziar.
1: Not without my brother. Uh, <laughs> no, I, you know, I like that's why the title of the book, I'm not a terrorist, but I play one on TV comes because I did a Chuck Norris movie of the week where I played a terrorist. I did a terrorist in, in another really cheesy CBS TV show with Arsenio Hall and Sam O'Hung. It was called Martial Law. And then I did a terrorist on the TV show 24. And after doing those three, I realized I really don't want to do any more of those. It really put a bad taste in my mouth and I just stopped doing those um so um so yeah so so that was that was the early part of my career and and the beauty of they always say in hollywood one of the best words is no and when you say no i think that people go oh wow this guy is standing up for something or 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 he's actually got a a little bit of he's a little principled here uh and it was the best no i said which was i said no more terrorist parts and i haven't done any since
0: Mm, So you went detox on that. I want to know when you first got up in front of an audience what that feeling was like. You seem oh, wow. to do it with such ease. You know, I, I, I go and Google Maz brani's TED Talk. Uh, you performed in front of the King of Jordan. Uh, you go in front of various different cultures and 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 really touch third rail issues such as the axis of evil and terrorism and and Peja and we're like cats and you take a lot of tension off the table when you yourself must be terrified in front of an audience with various different cultural sensibilities.
1: Are there any Lebanese here tonight? Any Lebanese by applause? Lebanese. Yeah. Yeah, the Middle East is going crazy, you know the Middle East is going crazy, when Lebanon is the most peaceful place in the region. My first time in front of an audience was, was when I was 12, actually when I was 4 I think I did one in Iran and I, and I, and I ended up talking and they put me in the chorus, but I, I was talking no, but when I was... Stand up, yeah. stand up. When yeah, yeah. did you get well, up well, on
0: a stage and say, oh, well, you know what, I'm going to do this?
1: No but that's what I'm getting at. So, so I first did st- plays at 12 and that made me comfortable on a stage. So I was comfortable being on a stage. I didn't mind being on a stage. Uh, but, the, but, the, but the fear of stand-up comes with, oh, it's your material. You've written it. You can't blame anybody. You can't blame the director, the other actors, the writer. It's all you. And basically, if they don't laugh, they're not laughing at you. They're judging you. That's all the weight i put on my shoulders about doing stand-up. So I was really petrified about doing stand-up. And I, and, I, and I flirted with it a couple of times in my early 20s. Um, and, I, and I had written these little monologues that I did at a couple of stand-up gigs in Los Angeles in my early 20s. But it wasn't until my mid-20s when I really thought, you know what, I'm going to go for this. And the best way I did it, and I, and I recommend this to a lot of people, the, the, you either got to go in front of a total, an audience of strangers and get on stage and try and tell jokes, and that's called an open mic night. And usually those are just death. Because no one's paying attention to you, and all the other people there are doing open mics. They're all there to do their own set. Is the six drink
0: minimum uh, in order to get people to laugh? (laughs) Tell us about this. I read about it to get people to kind of give you some charitable laughs.
1: Yeah, I think two drink minimum is it does help to loosen people up. Sometimes it angers people because they're like, "I don't want to spend ten bucks on a on a coke," you know, because it's usually an overpriced drink. But but it definitely is there to loosen people up, and it's there to help the club make money. but I think what happens is either at the open... So for me, what happened was I took a class. And I always tell people, I go, listen, if you can find a stand-up comedy class, take the class. Because it's like doing an open mic, but you have a teacher who's going to give you feedback, uh, which you don't get at an open mic night. So for me, I ended up signing up for a class, and, um, and it really helped. And, and I went from there. I really was never that nervous on stage, But I still, you know, you get a little nervous because you think, okay, for example, when you do a show in front of the King of Jordan, which we did with the Axis of Evil, you think to yourself, uh, what jokes do I, what am I supposed to cut out? What do I put in? Uh, You know, when you do a show that is your show at a comedy club or at a theater and people have paid to come see you, you're a lot less nervous because you can say whatever you want. and Even if you cuss, it's not a big deal. It's your show. Uh, go for it, but when you do a show where there's a special guest in the audience or it's for a corporate event, uh, that's when you start freaking out. You're like, oh my God, what can I say? What can I not say? Sometimes you have a joke that you think would not be offensive, but then in the middle of your joke you go, oh no, this is going to be offensive. Like one time, this is recently, I did a joke uh, that referenced Bin Laden and it referenced him in a derogatory way, obviously, and in America, people love it. But I was in Saudi Arabia doing doing the show and in Saudi Arabia the bin laden family is a respected family so in the middle of the joke i was like oh no i am about to insult the whole family and i was like how do i get out of this and i in all honesty i just kind of did the punchline but i did it a little quieter just so not everybody would hear <laughs>
0: Maz I want to fast forward to the here and now and kind of uh, step back from this. This is a vastly different um, uh, period. They call it the golden age of content on television. You can binge things on Netflix. Uh, Your life is not necessarily dictated by how well you perform on The Tonight Show uh, or people watching TV. Millennials, maybe your target audience, is much more apt to catch you on YouTube. You have to own uh, kind of the means of production and distribution in a creative way, kind of like Louis C.K. did with paid downloads. Talk to us about the opportunity there and, and the peril, because I was a big fan of this project that I believe you kickstarted was Jimmy Vestwood, this, this character out of California who becomes this anti-superhero out of his mother's house. And that's not something that, that Hollywood traditionally was prepared to write a check for.
1: Absolutely. I think that I, I tell people this and, and I remind myself of it always because I get lazy sometimes. But I always say you have to create your own opportunities. And this is now an era, like you said, where we really can do that. Um, and, and, and it's amazing. I mean, to this day, like I have my agents and managers. I tour a lot. I'm, all the, I'm on the road all the time. And they're constantly saying like, okay, um, you're going to be in San Diego. So <clears throat> can you do a video for San Diego? want They want to put it up online. Can you do a video for the Dubai gig? And I'm constantly putting these silly videos of myself lip-syncing a song and messing up the song. And I will dedicate it to whatever city I'm going to. And I upload it on Facebook. And suddenly the thing gets whatever, 10,000 hits or whatever it gets. And it's amazing. It's just, it's two minutes and and it's done. And people talk about it. And so we're in this world where you have to do that. And so this movie, Jimmy Vestfoot, American Hero, is a movie that I co-wrote with my writing partner, Amiro Hepsian, and we produced it, and it was basically, I could describe it as the Persian Pink Panther meets Borat. It's an, a guy living in Iran who wants to be an American hero, finally wins the green card lottery to come to America, wants to be a cop, like Steve McQueen was in the movie Bullet, but he can't get a job as a cop, so the best job he gets is working as a security guard at a Persian grocery store. If it wasn't for me to give you a job, you would be back home in Iran in prison. Why would I be in prison? Do you think they need to have a reason to put you in prison in Iran? And like you just said, major film studios are not going to make that movie.
0: But why? So, wait, hold on. Why wouldn't they? They underwrite so much stupid, dumb... You know, you could tell when it comes out. Like, I'm sure it killed you to see that, what was it, Mordecai, several weeks ago, just because, you know, Johnny Depp is in it. You, you can smell these bombs from a mile away. And bombs listen, are much more expensive right now in that people are not going to the movies like they used to.
1: Well, listen, I mean, there's a couple of things. First of all, it's, it's just basic finance for these guys like if you say Johnny Depp's in it or if you say Tom Cruise is in it or whatever they go okay great that guy's got box office we'll put the money in boom let's go. Secondly I'm learning more and more that it's not just the the budget and the movie but it's the advertising budget so they'll make a movie for 12 million and spend 20 million promoting it so no matter what happens that first weekend people go see it the movie makes its money back. And they're done, and then and then you know everything else is ancillary, right? You know they they might make some overseas money, whatever. So it's just how the system's set up. I mean, it's like and I and I've and I've and I've stopped fighting the system because, the, I tell this to young actors. I go, the odds of you walking down the street and somebody pointing at you and going, "You, you're my next Brad Pitt," it ain't gonna happen. So make your own stuff. And you look at all the guys that ended up doing really well. A lot of them started out making their own things. You know, a guy like uh, Owen Wilson did a movie called Bottle Rocket. Right. Um, you know, Sylvester Stallone did Rocky. Um, uh, just a lot of uh, a lot of people started out just putting their money in, putting it on their credit card. You know, you hear stories of of, of Tarantino. I even heard a story of like Sidney Pollack when he first made his first movie and he had to mortgage his house. And I mean, it's just like, you know, you just do it. And so the beauty of this day and age is that we have things like Kickstarter and Indiegogo, which we used uh, – Indiegogo we used to to help uh, begin funding Jimmy Vestwood.
0: And, and give uh, us an idea. What did you need to raise for Jimmy Vestwood overall to make – to what, come out with three pilots or what? How, how does it work? No, no.
1: So we were trying to make just the movie. We, we were trying to make a full-length film and – you know, you, go to diff- you can go to different producers and a producer say, well, I can make this, I can give you a budget that's a million, I can give you a budget that's 10 million. What are you looking to do? And we said, you know what, the less the better, because ultimately our goal is for the movie to come out, people like it, and make our investors their money back. So we made it for um, a little bit more than half a mil, uh, but it looks like over a mil. We got a great cinematographer Armando Salas is his name.
0: You know, I, I I do want to ask you, what do you do? You offer people? It's one of these these. Tricky things you have to do, and, and I'm also a media startup. You say at the very outset we're all kind of doing this lean and mean because the payoff is both psychic, and uh, you know it'll it'll come down later on when we get a big deal from Netflix or Showtime. Where does what is the profit center? Like what is the moneymaker for you right now? I understand your wife is successful, but uh-huh. if you as a kind of a comedian and and an educated comedian and a person who's put significant sweat equity into this, uh, what is paying your bills?
1: Well, you know, uh, a couple of things. First of all, my wife, because we have two kids now, she's not actually working. Uh, but but she was a successful lawyer. She was successful with, at that. But for the time being, she's helping uh, raise these kids. For me, it was interesting. When I first started out, I would get guest star parts on TV shows and I would do stand-up comedy at the local clubs in L.A. And the local clubs in L.A., when you first start out, they'll pay you like $15 a set, so you might do five or six sets in a week and not even make a hundred bucks, but but really it's because you're working out and growing. So early on, my acting gigs were paying for my stand-up comedy. At some point, that changed. And suddenly, my stand-up comedy, now I tour the world and, you know, knock on wood, I make a living doing stand-up comedy. So my stand-up comedy is paying for my acting and that it allows me also to take parts that I want to take and not take parts that I don't want to take. So, for example, I can say... No to terrorist parts, and not worry about it because I've got a gig in uh, New York that weekend, and I'm gonna make make a make my money for that weekend. I don't need to go be, be a a terrorist on NCIS on on CBS, you know. So that's what's happened, and 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 I continue to do independent stuff. This movie Jimmy Vestwood, we made it. Now we're trying to distribute it. That's a whole other world. I have such a respect for filmmakers because you think the hard part is making it. The hard part is distributing it because just like Uh, uh, um, studios weren't interested in making this film, big distributors aren't interested in distributing the film. So now we're back to finding an independent uh, distributor or or someone who will invest some money and just to helping us get the movie out. So so these struggles are going to be there. So since these struggles are going to be there no matter what, I advise people two things. I say, first of all, do what you love to do. Whatever that is, do what you love to do because whatever you love to do is going to be hard, but at least you'll love it, you'll enjoy the process. And the second thing I say is make your own opportunities and that stand-up is something that I was able to create my own opportunity through by doing it over and over. I've been doing it now for 17 years and I've created a market for myself where I can make a living doing this. So that's what's keeping me afloat right now,
0: hmm. Jabrani, In the few minutes we have left, I do want to get your your take on this Iran deal. Um, I know it's a you know a hard turn that we're making, but after all, it goes back to your father was a successful businessman there. You lost everything to the revolution. You'll notice a lot of people in the exile community, especially in Southern California, uh, oppose any sort of uh, easing with Iran, anything that's going to make the regime's life um, easier. Uh, you seem to think that the deal is worthwhile. Why?
1: Yeah, I think that what you said, there's a lot that are, are opposed, but there's also a lot that are for it. I've, I've, most of the Iranians I've spoken to are for it, uh, Iranians in America. I think that there's a handful of things. First of all, I'm very much anti-war, and I feel that if we don't take this turn and give this a shot, that war would be inevitable. Um, this, at least, is saying, hey, let's Wait, why
0: the- is war inevitable? If, if the United States was, was squeezing them and oil prices fall, I mean, who has the leverage in this? I feel that
1: war is inevitable because the even in all this time that we have been trying to monitor them, they've continued to to move towards uh, um, uh, nuclearizing, and so I feel that if we continue to squeeze them, that they would just. Uh, uh, speed up that process because now we have absolutely no tie with them we have absolutely no ability to go and monitor them and they would say okay well you know what you want us to be a rogue nation we'll continue to be a rogue nation and they would speed up that process which would then lead us to saying us and israel saying look they're really close now to a nuclear weapon and would would lead us to threatening them and probably lead us to doing some uh, uh surgical strikes which would not be good because then they would retaliate and I think that the ultimate lead up would be a war. I feel that, that would that's where that would lead. I think what we've done right now with the with the deal, I think that it's given us a diplomatic chance to go, okay, we're actually gonna monitor. Now some people on the that are poster are saying, Well, we really can't monitor, we gotta give them a warning. Well, I say, you know what? At least we at least they're letting us uh, uh you know, at least they're opening the door and we've got a foot in the door so let us at least use that. If down the line we find out that they are continuing to uh, weaponize or whatever, then we can go back to this same option, which is you know that, that we go, okay, we're gonna do th- surgical strikes, and if you don't like it, then it can lead to a war. But at least diplomacy is giving us a chance, first of all, to, to get in with them a little bit uh, and open the door. Secondly, I think I've seen and heard that the young people in Iran have really, or just just the average person in Iran, has really suffered from the sanctions. And I know that the people that are opposed to it go, well, the government's just gonna siphon off all that money. Well, at the same time, there will have to be some money trickling into the economy. Uh, so I don't believe that all the money will be siphoned off. On that I note, think- I
0: have to say, if you did return to Tehran right now and didn't get arrested and thrown into jail, I would, I would venture to guess that seven out of 10 people on the street would recognize you by dint of piracy and Internet and Maz uh. And, um, you know, finally, in closing, uh, and I'm going to put you on the spot here. If you get asked by a president in four or eight or 12 years to become our uh, next and first ambassador to Iran in more than four decades, will you accept, sir?
1: I've made fun of the regime. I've made fun of the leadership in Iran. So until there is a major change, uh, that I, I'm, I I, ain't going back. I, I like my freedom.
0: <laughs> Maz Jobrani, I cannot thank you enough. Thank you so much for joining us from Tarantulas.
1: Thank you, Robin. Appreciate it.
0: Full disclosure catch us on NPR1, WRIR, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Our engineer is John Valentine. We are 100% Zamat, Zero tarof, Number 1 Tadig, 241 Kebab. Thank you, Chash, Chash. I'm Robin Farzad. Back at you next week. Hey. Judy now.